0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome back, my weird friends. You are listening to Pocket Full of Crime, where I'm going to bring you just that. I am your host, Rachel. Thanks for stopping in once again. So um, I wanted to tell you right off the bat before I get into this week's case that your girl has branched out i know i'm old school and everybody makes fun of me that i've never had an instagram but now i do so there's that look me up i also have a youtube channel so videos to come on that as well so let's just get right into it let's get weird so this week's case i would say is close to home and this took place in Byers, colorado and Let me give you a little brief background story of my ties to Byers, why I chose this case specifically to be my first. So my dad was born and raised in Byers. My grandparents and their three boys farmed the area, and in the year of 1986, my mom and dad were still living in Byers at the time. My oldest sibling, my brother, was born in 1987, so just a year after this murder took place, he was born. So I guess you could say I grew up hearing about this small-town murder. My mom has newspaper clippings still in a scrapbook, and I was so excited when she whipped this out when I told her that um, I wanted to cover this case as my first episode. So I knew then that this was going to be my first case. The murder of Virginia May. This case takes us to Byers, Colorado in Arapahoe County, 46.4 miles east of Denver. As of July 2019, Byers' population came in at 1,321. The town has its name from William Byers, a Colorado newspaper editor. Fun fact, the post office has been in operation since 1873. The school mascot is the Bulldogs, and my dad graduated from Byers High School, a very proud Bulldog. I had a hard time finding any information pertaining to Virginia or Ginny, with a G as they referred to her, mainly because things just weren't put on the internet as they are nowadays. So I wanted to speak on her behalf and tell you all about who she was as a person, not just a victim. Ginny was the first born to Alice and Rod McLennan. She was married to Gary May, and together they had two children, Brandon, seven, and Christopher. They lived 25 miles northeast of Byers on a ranch, and accompanied on that ranch lived Jenny's father, Rod McLennan, brothers Scott, Dan, and Dave. I did find in a newspaper clipping that my mom had from her memorial service, she was called a gift to her family, extolled her sincerity and faithfulness. She was only 33 years young when she was murdered. In February of 1986, Gary Lee Davis was hired as a ranch hand on the ranch operated by the Mays and the McLennans. Gary Lee Davis was hired on, and he and his wife Becky took up residency in a house owned by his boss on the portion of the ranch closest to the Mays. Gary Lee Davis was born in Wichita, Kansas, August 13, 1944. Gary was the middle child of three, raised by his mother. His father was absent, and his mother remarried when Gary was eight years old. Gary claimed later on, after his murder convictions, to have been the victim of sexual assault from a young age at the hands of his older stepbrothers. Davis dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, and he was 17 when he joined the Marines. After boot camp is when he married his first wife, Tanya Ann Tatum. The couple were married five years, and in that time, they had two sons together. Once Gary was deployed was when things kind of took a turn. Gary became jealous, suspecting that his wife was cheating while he was away, and began drinking heavily. The Marine Corps took notice to Gary's alcoholism and paranoia. He was then diagnosed with having homicidal tendencies, unstable personality, and schizoid trends. He was then given medical discharge. Back home, Gary worked a few miscellaneous jobs, but was frequently unemployed. His wife, Tanya, ended up leaving him, and she took their two sons. In 1974, Gary married his second wife, Leona Coates. She was only 17 at the time, and he was 30. Together, they had four children. This marriage ended up lasting eight years. Davis later claimed that the marriage was a big mistake and stuck around because she kept shelling out kids. Now, Leona has given two very different versions of their marriage. After the murder of Ginny, Leona told investigators that she was abused in drunken rages, was coerced into a threesome with another woman, and at one time claimed that Davis had held a gun to her head. She ended up recanting her original statement nine years later and then stated that the gun was plastic, that Gary was a good husband and father who just happened to drink too much on the weekends. The last few years of Gary and Leona's marriage, he had multiple run-ins with the law. His criminal history up to this point included grand larceny, burglary, menacing, and then sexual assault. In 1979, he had lured a clerk from a convenience store with the excuse of needing help with the ice machine. Once outside, he then held a knife to her neck and forced her into the alley. Thankfully, the woman struggled with Davis and escaped, sustaining wounds to her hand and throat. He was charged, coughed a plea, and spent less than a year in prison for the assault. Once released, it didn't take him much longer to find his next victim. And this time, it was a 15-year-old girl and a daughter to one of Leona's friends. Davis claimed the 15-year-old girl reported him because he offered her $300 for sex, but then took back his word. The girl had told police officers that Davis had pulled a knife on her as well as raped her. Davis was charged once again, and another plea bargain got him eight years behind bars, but with good behavior, he was out in four. A correctional officer described Davis as a model prisoner. He kept to himself, earned special privileges, and went through his alcohol treatment. During this sentence, Davis began to collect many female pen pals. Now divorced twice, a fellow inmate gave the address to Davis of a woman who was named Rebecca Fincham. She was a lonely woman who answered an inmate's personal ad in the newspaper. If any of you have evidence of what one of these ads may have looked like back then, please do share. It just blows my mind that women have such a thing for men behind bars. Puke. Davis began to write her. She responded and told him all about her two young daughters and her unhappy marriage. Davis, of course, sympathized and flirted, and three letters later, she asked, quote, "'Do you miss sex?' The letters heated up real quick. Sexually explicit would be an understatement, as they were called. Davis was impressed and intrigued this woman wasn't shy and she had fantasies that kept up with his own. Becky Fincham started to visit Davis and he was surprised to find out that she was obese, seemed to be missing her eyebrows, and had scars on her breasts and arms. He thought she was repulsive, and years later stated he was scared of her because she was so overweight. Despite this, Becky bought him a TV, boots, expensive silk handkerchiefs, and gave him weekly spending money. In a visit from Becky in 1984, Davis asked her to marry him, and she accepted. The two were married by a minister over the phone, and Becky's daughters then began to call Davis, Daddy. Puke. Another inmate became interested in Becky's 13-year-old daughter and asked to write her. Neither Becky nor Gary objected, and in fact, Becky sent the two of them a package. This package included a topless photo of herself for Davis and a semi-nude photo of her daughter for his fellow inmate. Mother of the Year award right there. The photos were intercepted. And Becky was charged with sexual exploitation of a minor and was no longer allowed to visit Davis. So not being able to visit each other, the newlyweds had to fall back on the phone to keep things hot and steamy. Everyone knows that prison calls are subject to monitoring. And a psychologist reported after an interview with Davis, quote, Mr. Davis would like to hear his wife give head. Becky brought a male named Jay into the picture and did just that while Davis was on the phone and was able to hear. Once Davis was released from prison, the couple faced numerous problems. Becky had received three years probation on that child exploitation charge. So, Davis, being a convicted rapist on parole, couldn't live under the same roof as her daughters. Becky sent her daughters out of state to live with their grandparents. Which I can't help but think that maybe with the way that this story goes that that wasn't the best thing for those girls. Both Becky and Gary landed two jobs managing apartments in Aurora. Davis even kept his drinking under control for a short while. Davis stated, quote, I thought when I married Becky that I could overlook her being so fat, but I was wrong. I was lonely even with her. I took up drinking again to fill the empty void in my life. I drank to have the stomach to touch that fat broad. He also added, quote, to be blunt, it was damn hard to even get a hard on when Becky would give me a blowjob. I just didn't have feelings for her. So the couple then became very desperate to live out and carry on these fantasies that they once had and had promised each other. They made advances to other residents in the apartment complex, but were often denied. On occasion, though, Becky would engage in sex with a female neighbor or the neighbor's husband while Davis watched. Davis still wasn't satisfied, and his attention was drawn to a more attractive female tenant and told a friend, quote, he would like to drug the woman and rape her. Becky became the jealous wife and often demanded his whereabouts. The two only lasted about six months before they wore out their welcome at the apartment complex. There were many complaints due to the line, drinking, and constant sex talk. Becky ended up answering an ad looking for a hired ranch hand on the Eastern Plains. She lied about being married 16 years with Davis and that they had experience on the resume. In February 1986, the two moved to Byers and started this new job as hired ranch hands. Byers was small, conservative, and quiet. Davis would have to make the trip to town to lurk on other women. Gary and Becky even spoke about kidnapping a woman and turning her into a sex slave. The couple drove to Fort Morgan one day and purchased a 22 semi semi-automatic rifle. No one cared to even notice that this was a violation of his parole, but if anyone were to have asked, he would have simply stated that the gun was to kill snakes in his yard. Weeks leading up to Davis's final crime, he began to drink heavily again. He and Becky would often cruise Fort Morgan looking for the perfect victim. His ideal victim was slender and attractive, and that started to make Becky jealous. Gary referred to Virginia May, as well as her sister-in-law Sue, as quote his type, which upset Becky further. Another ranch hand testified Gary's obsession and crude remarks about Virginia when he and Gary were fixing a fence close to the Mays property. He stated Gary revealed himself, urinated, and shook his genitals in the direction of the Mays home and said, quote, Come on, Virginia baby, I'm here, come to me. The dice began to roll on July 18th, 1986. Tammy Beaupre, a Wiggins resident, was visited on her farm by a couple in a green car with Kansas license plates. The woman asked directions back to buyers from Wiggins while the male stepped outside of the car and made his way behind Tammy. Luckily, Tammy's husband arrived home just in time and the man got back into the car and the two drove away. Tammy later did identify her visitors as Gary Davis and Becky Fincham. On July 21st, only three days later, the couple tried again. Sue McLennan, Virginia May's sister-in-law, who also lived on the ranch, received a strange phone call from Becky asking if her husband was home and stated that she had some children's clothing to drop off to sue. There was no such sorts of clothing. The two had very different plans. Upon arriving at Sue's house, they noticed the presence of another male ranch hand on the property. Becky stayed long enough to have a glass of iced tea with Sue while Gary stayed in the car. The two struck out once again. Early evening the same day, Virginia May was visited by Gary and Becky. She too had received a call and was fooled to believe a delivery of clothes for her kids were about to be dropped off. Virginia met the couple out in the yard with her four-year-old daughter, Krista. Becky lured Virginia to a tool shed where Gary struck her in the face and forced her into the back of their car. Becky shooed Krista back into the house and they fled at a high rate of speed. Now I'm going to go into another warning that what happens next is gruesome, violent, and maybe uncomfortable to hear. Davis and Becky have since stated conflicting stories about the events after kidnapping Ginny. One version was Gary dragged Ginny out of the car and out of sight while Becky was frightened in the car. The next version, Gary painted himself as confused and under orders from Becky, the jealous wife, acting out in a fit of rage. The third version is the most backed up by evidence, which is Virginia was nude Dragged out of the car by a rope around her neck, she was raped and forced to perform oral sex on Becky. One thing for certain, Ginny begged and pleaded for her life, even offering the two $1,000 if they were to let her go. Davis struck Ginny in the head with his rifle, fracturing her skull. She did have defensive wounds on her hands which led investigators to believe that she raised her hands above her in defense when he shot her 14 times and killed her. Ginny had nine gunshot wounds to the head, four to the torso, and one to her left breast and one to her groin. Davis and Becky covered the body with a bale of hay and returned to their home to finish off some beers in the cooler. May's husband came home to find his two kids alone and startled. Suspicion set in when Krista, whom was four at the time, made the remark, quote, Becky took her. Police were notified, and both police and the frantic family pressed for answers from Gary and Becky. Becky did most of the talking, denying knowing Virginia's whereabouts, and even offering up her support by stating, quote, we want to do anything we can to help find your daughter, I know how you feel I was once raped myself. After that statement, I would obviously know something deep down in my gut was wrong because you don't just offer up that kind of accusation that Virginia was raped if you didn't know that prior. At this point in time, they had no idea. They didn't know where she was. They didn't have a body. They just had a four-year-old girl saying Becky took her. So the fact that Becky went there, I think kind of led to a deeper suspicion. So the two were arrested on their suspicious behavior earlier that day, visiting Sue, as well as Krista's statement. Davis made a deal with the Adams County District Attorney, and he would be able to plead guilty without the death penalty in exchange for the whereabouts of Virginia May. Gary made some compelling statements suggesting that Virginia May may still be alive. The remains were found by the description Gary gave, but the death penalty was sought out due to the fact that the defendant violated the plea agreement by not truthfully relating the circumstances of the offense to the prosecutor. Becky was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Gary was convicted of all charges and the jury took three hours to deliver the verdict and another three hours to sentence him to death. Through many appeals, Gary sat on death row and in a letter from death row stated, quote, if you decide death, can we please get it done? Death was easier than coming to terms with what he had done. And in my sole opinion, I think that death was too easy for this man. The first years on death row, he stated he was dry, but not sober. And he was heavily medicated on Xanax and antidepressants. Summer of 1990, Davis dismissed his lawyers and directed his new one to not continue with the appeals. Dennis Harley, his new lawyer, urged him that there were still avenues worth exploring. Davis agreed to let his lawyer continue to pursue the appeals only after one of Davis's daughters told him, quote, he would never see his grandchildren again unless he kept the appeals going. Davis did reconnect with estranged family on death row and even his first two wives. In 1993, Davis moved to Colorado State Penitentiary and he was under lockdown 23 hours of the day in an eight square foot cell. His appeals failed and Davis stated, quote, I want out of this place either by walking or in a box. The last few years of his life on death row consisted of Davis losing 40 pounds, his vision blurred, and he was diagnosed as a diabetic. He also received the news of the death of his father his favorite brother, as well as the news that his son was in prison in Texas for child abuse. And lastly, his daughter passed away from a brain tumor at just the age of 24. Davis's last meal was ice cream, as requested. His request for a cigarette was turned down. They had a smoking ban already at this time. His last words in a letter were, quote, I can't say goodbye, so I'll just say see you later. A hey, friend, gary gary was the first death penalty carried out in the state of colorado in 30 years he was executed by lethal injection on october 13th 1997 he was 53 years old in other words the state's executioners strapped him down opened his veins and flooded his heart with potassium chloride they put him down like a rabid dog My heart goes out to Virginia May, a mother that was taken terribly too soon and her two children that deserve to have a mother, her husband and her family and all of those that loved and adored her. Well, that wraps it up for our first episode, you guys. And that one was a tough one. So let's lighten up the mood real quick. What do you call a pig that does karate? a pork chop. Thanks again, you guys, for supporting me, listening to me, following me on Instagram, sharing me to a friend. Don't forget to join me next Wednesday for my next episode. If you have a specific case that you would like to hear, go ahead and follow me on Instagram and leave a comment below. Until next time, stay weird.